You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. T-shirts, get your t-shirts right here. About to be fresh off the press, your oneofus.net t-shirts, you can only get them right here. And please do, because for a limited time, oneofus.net, our new black and white t-shirts are on sale for really cheap if you pre-order them on the site. Please go ahead and pick yourself up a oneofus.net t-shirt, help out the site, help out yourself, and look great doing it. You can't do a cold open when it's this hot. No, you really can't. It's It's just impossible. The microphone melted. Is it still working? Uh, I don't know. I think my hand's glued to the ground. All right, hold on a second. Let me just kind of wave some air. It'll get hard and then brittle and we can peel it off. Oh, God. No, it's still in a molten state. Oh, my God. Okay, you know what? I know this is summer, but really. Can we do a hot open? Is that what this is? I I don't know. I think, you know, I think it's now become officially a viscous open. (laughs) Oh, God. You know what? Why don't we do another kind of cold opening? My favorite kind of cold opening. Beer. from the sweltering depths of the Austin summer, which after a seemingly a six-month protracted uh, thunderstorm that has leveled the state, now all of a sudden it is about at 8 billion degrees and humid as Hades. Fortunately, we have been inside doing the only thing that one can do when it's this warm and sunny, watching films. Watching films, talking about them, drinking beers and... You know, feeding the pet mosquitoes. Yay! I'm Richard. I'm Marco. We are back with a another. It's not a big stack, but it's a it's a good stack. There's it's some a deep real, stack. There's some really interesting stuff this week. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. First of all, the housekeeping. Uh, you are listening to Digital Noise, part of the One of Us .net family uh, of release uh, of of podcasts. See. Brains melting. Uh, we do appreciate that you listen to us. You know, we do it for you, the fans. We really appreciate you. We really appreciate your feedback. If you've got any comments on on the show, uh, please use the discus forum below this and get back to us. We always try and get back to you. So if you've got any comments, just yes, you know, we will interact. Um, don't forget. Any of the titles we talk about today, if you are on the one of us page, you can scroll down and you can see every single title we talk about. You click on that, it takes you to Amazon. You can just buy the, the disc directly from there. The great thing about that is that if you buy from Amazon after going to the site, we get a little bit back. Right. So it actually helps pay for the site. Helps keep the air conditioning on. <laughs> Which is essential at this time of year. So, the other great thing is it does. you don't even have to buy any of the movies we talk about this week. As oh. long as you buy something on that trip to Amazon, then... We get something back. Do a solid. Go on there. Click on one of these links, and then buy some bug spray and a little personal fan, <laughs> or a pith helmet. A pith helmet, maybe some mosquito netting and some quinine, just in <laughs> case malaria rears its ugly head it's yet again. Essential at this time of year, I have to say. Uh, also, I'd like to thank some of our uh, our sponsors, uh, which include Shout Factory, um, who produced some of the great discs that uh, we've talked about over the years still one of my favorite uh, production houses uh also sideshow collectibles um who you know anybody feels like buying me anything from then i will take it don't worry about that uh audible.com for audiobooks um and uh, if you're going to go to the cinema rather than staying home watching movies then you know click through from our link uh, to fandango mm-hmm. uh, and buy your tickets from them any of those will help her. Buying from any of those from the site will help keep one of us .net open. Beautiful stuff is. It's probably a site you're going to go visit anyway. So yeah. just go through you're us probably, first. Yeah, just go, just go to Soundtrack Collectibles and drool and like, you know, have your browser window open when relatives with money love you are wandering past and just look plaintiffs because there's some stuff on there that's like, yeah, you want to own that. Just leave your laptop open when your significant other is walking around. You know, come Christmas time, she'll get the hint. That's what you want. That's what I do. Anyway, uh, you know what? what? Housekeeping, uh, housekeeping all done. You know what we should get on with? The reviews. And we are going to start this week with a TV series. Yes. A TV series that I was kind of interested about going in. I know you went, you kind of went, 
yeah. And we both came out of it going, ooh, ooh I want to yeah. see season two. I am, I am not a sports fan, so sports-related media tends to not have a lot of appeal to me. But when I, you know, for the purpose of the review, I, I was going to do my due diligence and watch an episode or two just to of. give a review of Ballers. The uh, latest series starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Dwayne. Now he's just Dwayne. He's now just Dwayne. Well, there's a lot of. He uh, deserves to be just Dwayne. I'll give him that. There's a lot of. Uh, he paid a, a lot of money to get the rights to use the name The Rock. Yeah. Because you now it's Body's Bill's reputation. But this is Dwayne Johnson rather than Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Uh. Because this is Dwayne the more serious actor uh-huh. rather than, you know, Fast and Furious Dwayne. I got you. So I didn't realize that there was a thing about that. Okay, well, on this, he's simply going as Dwayne Johnson. This is Ballers. It's a 10-episode series. And as I said, I was a little bit reluctant, but I wanted to give it a try. And I have to say, Richard, I got sucked into this and just enjoyed the hell out of this series. I was not expecting that. These are 10 30-minute episodes. They go down quick. They're fun. They're breezy. They have just enough drama and sports-related humor for the hardcore fans, but I think it works great for a general audience as well. So well, I yeah, recommend it. The, the Rock here, I can't, I, I'm a wrestling fan. Oh, uh, yeah. As anybody who has listened uh, to Thumbtacks and Screwjobs, which is our, our wrestling podcast, they know I'm a wrestling fan. Uh, you know, he plays Spencer Strasmore, who's a retired NFL player who... You know, he earned a lot of money, he spent a lot of money, yeah. he gave a lot of money away, and now he's one of these guys who's not financially secure enough to just retire. So he's become a financial manager. But the whole point is, his company goes, you're not really a financial manager. No. You're the guy we need to get in with the other guys. As his friend Rob Cordry, his business partner, uh, tells him, we hired you to monetize your friendships. And he yeah, does. Rob Corddry, who oh, is he. on phenomenal fall as almost basically a greasy, sleazy little guy who oh, is yeah. super excited that he's hanging and, around with all these sports and, players. And yet they're kind of the heart of it. Their friendship, this very unlikely friendship, as they find out, they are a very effective team. Between his knowledge of the law and uh, finance, between their friend Jason, who is uh, the, a high-stakes negotiator on contracts, and everything else in the middle kind of falls on Spencer's shoulders. Uh, His job is to kind of babysit's the wrong term, but he has to negotiate a number of crises that his clients are going through. And because of his own background, he actually understands the various temptations and pitfalls that come when you are a young man who has suddenly been given an enormously obscene amount of money, world fame, groupies, hangers-on, entourages, and the like, and knows how quickly it can all end. And a lot of the, a lot of the, the plot in this season is about uh, Troy Garrity, uh, not sorry, Troy Garrity, uh, Donovan Carter, rather, as uh, Vernon, mm-hmm. who's this up-and-coming prospect who's doing well, but, you know, he's not... He's a, he's a good player, he's not a great player, and they're trying to sort out his future career, but he's got a hanger-on, Reggie, yeah. played by London Brown, who's this guy that he grew up with, who has looked after him at many levels, but now he's starting to clash with Spencer as, like, who's going to have control over, you know, what Vernon's doing, over his fate? And there's a great sequence early on where, yeah, kind of Reggie drops a bit of a truth bomb on Spencer, and you realise that, like, there's a depth here. This could have just been a lot of fart gags. Yeah. Or a lot of, you know, boob jokes. And there, there is a lot of nudity, a lot of drugs. Oh, yeah. But it it's is the HBO. NFL. It is the NFL. And it's a very, even by that standard, it's kind of tame compared to what probably actually happens. Yeah, I got a friend who covered the NFL from the locker room in the 80s, and some of the stories she told me. Yeah. One day, remind me to tell you her theory uh, about O.J. Simpson, because that is... Oh my. Fascinating stuff. That's sidebar, this, folks. Yeah, this is really, this is really great. Though. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was really shocked by it, how much I enjoyed this. At every as was I. I, I, I. Like I said, I meant to watch two episodes at most. I ended up watching all ten. Uh, you know, if you go to social media or the news, you can hear lots of horrible, heartbreaking stories about athletes doing unforgivable things everywhere everything from rape to murder to drugs to spousal abuse there's a lot of horrible stories out there ballers never goes into that dark a territory even though it has some drama it always keeps a light tone it's breezy it's fun 
you'll come to like the characters and the various uh, situations that Spencer has to get them out of. And it's another great turn for the Rock. Yeah, the guy who he is. a guy who you know, everybody forgets that they go, oh, he was a wrestler. No, this was a guy who went out and was an improv actor. Uh, and stunt guy in front of uh, I think his biggest crowd he ever performed within the WWE was probably about 70,000 people mm. this guy has chops and now yeah. he's got more subtle chops and Spencer is a really fascinating character yeah. here I, you know, I, I watch this and I'm like I can't see anybody else doing this role because Spencer has to be charming but he has to look like an ex-ball player and he's which the, the only, Rock yeah. does he is he's like so many other actors before him who come out of athletics uh, he's kind of limited by his bulk. You kind of would have a hard time believing him in a lot of other roles. Yet the roles he picks are very smart. Uh, they work very well for his physique, his personality, and he just pulls it off great. I mean, there's a lot of athletes, martial artists, whatever, turned actor, and we kind of enjoy them as sort of stunt casting. But Dwayne Johnson is an actual actor in in addition to those physical gifts that he possesses. Yeah. Highly no, recommend. Full thumbs up for yes, uh, for uh, ballers. Oh. oh, thumbs down for the worst comedy sequel in years. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say ever, which was strong, oh, no, 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 no. in years. Is because, uh, no, Clerks, Clerks 2. Clerks 2 is pretty bad. bad. Zoolander 2, number two, AKA, the Magnum Edition. A.K.A. Zoolander number 2, a.k.a. Toolander. Now, Zoolander, yes. Th- I remember when the original Zoolander came out, we were first, everybody was first looking at the trailer and going, there's no way this is any good. And it's still hard to say why that film works and yeah. why it's as funny. But a lot of it is charm. Yeah, and a, t- and a premise that was kind of fresh at the time because we've seen plenty of dumb, ditzy female models, but putting this in the world of male fashion models was kind of a fresh take on what could have been a very familiar topic. But that little success that they had with it, I mean, and you can't deny it, I I don't think Zoolander is a great film by any means. But it did work its way into the pop culture. People reference it. They think about it. They talk about it. They make memes about it. They make jokes about it. Zoolander 2... 15 years after the original. 15 excruciating, unnecessary years after the original. It tries so hard to capture that same lightning in the bottle, uh, and it fails. It, it, if, any, if the word sequelitis applies to anything, it's this film. This is one of the most charmless films I think I've seen this year. The basic idea is that... Uh, Zoolander has gone into some kind of in, into retreat and self personal self exile uh, because the uh, the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids who can't who can't read good and want to read good and do other good things and oh god that joke was funny in two thousand one yes. it is not funny now uh, collapsed because it was made out of popsicles um, and his wife died in it so. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, he tragically disfigured his best friend, yeah. played by Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, yeah. Uh, and he's become alienated from his son, who... Is, there's a running joke that his son is a little bit podge, and yeah. therefore it's very hard for him to love him because he's a bit... And it's like, you know, in the first film, that joke would have been funny because Zoolander, you know, he just doesn't get how anything works. And a lot of it was offset by the fact that you had much better actors around him who would kind of, you know, when they did basically spit takes mm-hmm. or what the hell are you talking, it worked with them. There's nobody here to do that. It's all dumb, charmless characters. So you have this incredibly convoluted plot of he's back and he's trying to get, you know, basically get the team back together and nothing about this is funny, and Mugatu is back, which is like, oh, God, at, at, at this point, Will Ferrell, please, did you need to do this? Although he is weirdly one of the few almost funny bits about this. The only thing, the only thing about this that I actually came close to laughing about uh, was the fact that um, Hansel, uh, uh, played by Owen Wilson, uh, is in a committed relationship with an orgy. Yeah, yeah, that, and that, that was worked. the that, first time they dragged that joke out. That kind of worked. That was almost funny. 
that would have made like a, an entertaining short to include. The fact that but they the included that a ten year old girl as part of the orgy kind that was of weird. turned me off. That was weird. Uh, that was not. You know, it didn't. It's never explained, but they're like, oh, okay. Um, but the fact that he, you know, he manages to get the entire orgy, including, um, oh, what's his face? Ah, Kiefer Sutherland, including Kiefer Sutherland, pregnant, is is it's kind of a funny joke, and yet even they don't even stick the landing with that. No. Nothing about this is good. Part of the problem with that is. And you see it throughout this film. Remember, I said it, it, sequelitis perfectly applies. Everything, it's everything that the original did, but they try to make it bigger. They try to make it more from the production design to the stunts to like this opening that's something like out of a Bourne film, which never would have fit in the original, to this bizarre subplot or this, the main plot, which is this sort of pseudo Dan Brown conspiracy theory, uh, which I won't even get into. But everything is quality in terms of the production value, in terms of the cinematography, and yet they, and there's even more stars, even more celebrity cameos, but they meet, make this classic mistake of, this joke isn't particularly good, but if we put it in a really fancy, posh set, and we get some great character actor or celebrity rock star to come out and deliver this line, somehow it's actually funny. And it exploits that nervous first laugh you get of recognition when you see somebody. But that itself does not make the joke work. And it's full of that. Um, this is the Magnum edition, which means it's slightly longer than the theatrical edition. Because uh, Magnum! You know, ah! Because Magnum! Oh, God. Hey. So, hey, if you liked Zoolander number two and you wanted just a little bit more, hey, this is it. Otherwise, I don't see why anybody else should have to watch this. Yeah, terrible. Looks pretty. Yeah, weird film that kind of has emerged out of the depths. Now, if I said to you that I've got a movie that was directed by the guy whose directorial debut was was the great and kind of sadly overlooked Roger Dodger, which is one of Campbell Scott's greatest performances. I love that film. More people should see it. Go see it. Go find it on Netflix. Um, but you've also got... Um, who else is in here? Miles Teller. Miles Teller. Anna, Anna Kendrick. Kendrick Christopher Mintz-Platt. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden. Alison Brie being beautifully obscene in a way that only she can. Bruce Davison. Mark Maron. John C. John C. McGinley. John Cho. Yeah. Uh, Jay Farrow, you know, this you is, could make five great casts out of this just is, this one cast. Instead, you've got the really weird get a job. Yeah, this is a sort of millennial rom com workplace slacker stoner comedy. Uh, it tries to do all of those things and often fails. Uh, basically, Miles Teller is a young man who, in his opening monologue, talks about how he was raised to where everything he did was great. You know, he's part of this millennial generation that, you know, gets awards just for participating. If you take up poop successfully or you scribble something on a piece of paper, your parents treat it like a masterpiece. So you have this idea in place from the very beginning of these sort of spoiled millennials who are just suffering from this self of sense, uh, the sense of self-entitlement, trying to live out in the real world. But it sharply takes diverges from that. And that's part of the problem for this, for me, in that I was thinking I was going to get a a satire in the millennial generation, and it ends up just being a subpar Judd Apatow workplace comedy with a few topical jokes just to remind you that these are 20-somethings. But and topical then, for 2012, because this is actually, right. for various reasons, this has been sat on a shelf for four years. And sometimes, you know, a then, film can survive that. Um, I don't think this does. I, I mean, the, the reason it did it sat on a shelf was it wasn't very good. No, there was distribution issues. Yeah, uh, you know, I think for it a got, film that was still not very still good. Not very good. <laughs> but you know, that never stops stuff getting distributed. That's true. But you know, this film reminds me of nothing so much as Cameron Crowe's singles. It's got that same yeah. thing going on of multiple plots. You know, a bunch of people who like each other and kind of share, you know, and the romance is bouncing off each other. But, and trying to say something about the state of life for 20 somethings in that particular era. The thing was that singles succeeded. Singles also had a great soundtrack, so that really gave it a lot. This, 
it never feels like it's got the same spark. Uh, Dylan Kidd is not the director that uh, Cameron Crowe is by any stretch of the imagination. But it does, anyway, it touches on a, a whole bunch of really interesting stuff. There's you know, unemployment and the idea that, you know, you're, this is the most depressing thing about it, was that in singles, all the characters are going, okay, I've either got a real job and it's not the best job in the world, but I, I've still got time to do my own stuff and I can still go to clubs and I can still do this stuff and I've got my friends who've got less responsible jobs, but they're working on finding their own lives. Um, and then the other characters are like, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to be in a band because I can still make a living by working at Starbucks and fifteen other, doing 15 other gigs. Um, this, there's a moment where a character goes, yay, I've made it, I've been offered a job that pays in stock options. And I'm like, oh my God, when did life get so depressing? And that's the thing, there's so many things that could have been great in this and they're just not. And I'm not sure what it is that... that fails to bring them together or whether it's something like singles only comes comes around once in a blue moon and i think it it it, it just doesn't have that particular alchemy but this you know like i said there's so many there's so many great little moments i mean and the cast you know, is anna kendrick shrieking great job oh anna kendrick shrieking bong me um is wonderful uh uh, Alison Brie at her most ph- phenomenally obscene. Oh, yeah. And as few people can do just straight out lascivious quite as well as Alison Brie, and she does that really well. And Miles Teller's engaging enough. Christopher Mitchell, I think, is, you know, he's a very underrated actor. He's actually getting better over time. Like I said, there's so many bits here that work, but independently, but just nothing hangs together. No, it, it, it loses, it tries to do so many things, it shifts tones, and as I said, from that opening monologue to the final monologue, which directly contradicts what the opening monologue was about, it, it's got a very muddled message. Uh, it, it also really, it also feels like there's probably a a longer edit because this is only eighty two minutes, and I have a, I, I get the feeling this may have may have a, an Empire Records style Maybe three so. hour edit out somewhere that you know just hangs together I mean, better. But this, this was a first time script by a bunch of guys whose names I, I'm blanking on right now, and, and don't really care to look up right now. Uh, maybe you have it in front of you, but something must have been in that script to attract a cast of this caliber. It couldn't have sucked. Now, they could have had a great script, and somewhere along the line, somebody dropped the ball. But I agree with you. There's probably a longer edit. I just don't know if it's a better edit. I mean, maybe every generation gets the post-college workplace, learn-how-to-grow-up-and-be-an-adult comedy that they deserve. Maybe this is what the millennials deserve. I don't know. Maybe uh, we should ask a millennial what they think about this. As for this old dog, <laughs> I didn't care for unusual. it. Hey, you know... I've had to suffer through some of their stuff. It's only fair they suffer through this. Yeah. No, a very, very disappointing period piece. And talking about period pieces, um, yeah, this is a fundamentally bizarre little movie that is one of these things that people either love or hate. Uh, Mill Creek Productions, uh, who I think they haven't done an awful lot that anybody has paid attention to, but there is a there is a cult around the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. Um, which is, is the uh, what year was it? Nineteen fifty-three, I believe. Yeah. This was the only film that Doctor Zeus made. The only live-action film that. And you made. can see why another one was never made afterwards. This is, it's bonkers. Bonkers, but only it's not. It, it's not always bonkers in a good way. I agree with you that there is a lot to like in this film, and you got to admire the fact that it got made at all. But for me, this is about a little boy, who is. <laughs> At his piano, he hates piano lessons, and he piano. drifts off, and he, he, yeah, he's playing the piano, he drifts off, and he has this sort of nightmare, because you can't call it a dream, it's kind of nightmarish. His p- piano instructor has now become Dr. T, whose ambition is to have this organ, and he will rec- need, I think, Five thousand fingers. He needs yeah. that many it, children. It's Hans Conroy, uh, Comrade, yeah. uh, who uh, honestly, if you've ever seen Lost in Space, it's clear that Doctor Smith yeah. was a ripoff of, of 
Dr. T. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that the design of that piano with all the children sitting in front of it, it's a gorgeous visual. This film is full of those moments that are t- obviously taken directly from Seuss's drawings. But the cast itself I found very bland. The songs are miserably unmemorable. Right here on the poster it says, Songs You'll Never Stop Singing, which sounds to me less like a promise and more like a threat. It sounds like they're going to force you to sit at this piano and listen to these songs. You'll never stop playing this song. And there's an interminable song that all the children have to play. And as this little boy tries to overthrow Dr. T, and who has brainwashed his mother, and he's friends with the plumber, who is the blandest father figure one could imagine. It was 1953. It it, it does, but that's the thing. They somehow managed to suck all of the subversive radicalness of Seuss's characters. They captured the production design. They captured the look, but not really the soul of of, uh, Dr. Seuss. Well, I think part of the problem was that you know, you, if you read up on, on some of the history of production, uh, it Zeus, was trouble. Zeus wrote, wrote the script, and it was a twelve hundred word script, uh, an average one hour one hour drama is what about sixty to seventy pages? Yeah. You know, so that gives you an idea how completely out of control it was. When you consider that the best Dr. Seuss works, a typical Dr. Seuss work is about twenty pages and probably only about ten or fifteen words a page. Uh, this was not the right medium for him. Uh, he's one of those film or he's not a filmmaker, but one of those people that you think based on their work they should lend themselves to cinema. But the one time they tried, it didn't work. It works, and if you see all of the other various horrible uh, Dr. Seuss adaptations, it hasn't worked for that either. He's only ever worked either in book form or in cartoon form. Yeah, but this, I mean, it, it's... I, I think if you like Dr. Seuss, there is definitely something to be seen here. And there are some oh, set... I, mean, I, I, I think there are some set pieces that are really great. There's some chase sequences which are, mm-hmm. you know have this wonderful kind of German German expressionism meets Chuck Jones. In fact, the weird thing is um, that I discovered the guy who did most of Chuck Jones's layouts Uh actually served in the the propaganda unit that Zeus ran during World War II. Um, And they actually, in later years, when he um, was doing more of the animated stuff, they started working together again. And it's very weird. I was watching Duck Dodge in the 24th and a half century the other day. <laughs> and you can see, there's, there's moments which aren't Seussian, but they, you can see yeah, no, where I, the links are. And it really kind of, it, it's odd. It, you know, it almost visually, you know, the uh, Chuck Jones et al. were doing what Zeus was doing and doing his layouts and his use of perspective they were doing that 10 years later so from a design point of view this film is actually kind of ahead of its time yeah, no, from no doubt. every other point of view it's really I, I, I think if the songs had been better I would have forgiven a lot about it uh, I'm glad that it exists uh, and, and you dropped some really great information on it too unfortunately you won't get any of that information if you buy this disc it's a very bad one's disc this is, is absolutely bar- I mean there I is think, nothing on this I think but the, thing the movie. Is it was, the, the, this film was so buried for so many years because it was such yeah. a disaster that I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of material that might be yeah. around. I mean, there was a, they, they the original edit, which got shown to um, uh, uh, feedback groups, was huge, and they cut huge amounts out, and they completely reshot the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, that's the interesting thing. Everything I've read about it actually says that a. You know, Zeus came in and didn't know what to do with the medium anyway. Then the studio makes him go back in and do a lot more stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that has changed is the stuff that I think really fails to hit a tone. I mean, he wrote it. There was eight more songs. There was at least one more massive dance sequence in the map. The dance sequence of all the other instruments imprisoned, I think, is one of my favorite. No, it's that so is bonkers. What, it's beautiful looking, but it's wedded to this really bland, subpar Xavier Cougat 1950s cocktail music, the kind that would be in the background of a club scene in a, you know, romantic comedy. And, you know, that's when you really needed some... They bring out these beautifully designed Seussian instruments, and you wanted to hear something strange and exotic come out of them. And it's kind of like 
cocktail jazz with little bits of mambos and waltzes thrown in. I know I'm a little more critical of this than you. I did I, enjoy I it. it. It's fa- worth seeing. I find it fascinating, and I think it will, it will keep... You're more artistically inclined kids distracted for uh, Absolutely. Your smarter it, kids will like this. Yep. But it's going to be, if they have any sort of love for visuals, they're going to get into this. And if you're a Dr. Seuss completist, you absolutely should watch it. Just buy or beware. Yeah. You mentioned rom-coms, and you kind of get a rom-com with our next title. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hello, My Name is Doris, uh, which is a 20, 2015 rom-com uh, directed by Michael Showalter mm-hmm. um, from... Stella, most you know, I, I will always remember him as one third of Stella. Yeah, from the uh, old MTV, but, you know, Hot Wet American Sketch Summer. Um, uh, the back, he directed the Baxter as well. Uh, if anybody remembers that, it's like two people. Yeah, I, I um, never saw it. It's great fun, actually. I really yeah, like the Baxter. Uh, this is um, Sally Field playing an age-appropriate part. Yes, which is I think I could see why she would leap at this. She yeah. plays the titular Doris, uh, who is. She's you know recently lost her mother. She's a bit of a she's a hoarder, uh, and her family says, "Look, you have to start getting out of the house a bit because you know it's, it's not healthy for you." She decides she's gonna she's gonna, she's gonna go get and get a new lease on life. She works as an in an office as an accountant in this very she-she fancy uh, firm. Somehow, when they transferred over, she managed to stay on board, and she's surrounded by people who are much younger than her. One day she meets her new co-worker who is played by the gentleman by the name Max of Greenfield. Max Greenfield. He's a perfectly charming, sort of acceptably bland leading man. But Doris, who is at least two, if not three times his age, goes absolutely madly in love with him based on a, a, uh, a self-help seminar she goes to, hence the name Hello, My Name is Doris, where she is told that, why not me? Why not go out there and grab life, do what you want? So she decides to take up that offer and begins flirting with this guy, fantasizing about him, setting up a fake Facebook profile so she can stalk him, going to clubs that he might be at. Now, if you're thinking there's going to be a certain amount of cringe comedy to see a man that young being pursued by a woman that of that age, you're absolutely right. And well, I was a little show, Walter. It is, and I was a little nervous because I am a Sally Field fan, and I just did not look forward to two hours of Sally Field uh, being made to humiliate herself and look terrible. Uh, and there are moments like that. It's only because she manages to make Doris who in somebody else's hands could have been a cartoon character, but Sally Field does find the humanity in that character and makes us appreciate her, even when she does things that would border, that more than border creepy and strange. Yeah, uh, it's it's got again another film that's got a great supporting cast. It's it's almost quirky to a fault. It has an ending that I'm not completely convinced really uh, works for me personally. But there's a lot of great th- moments along the way, uh, especially uh, in all the scenes where Tyne Daly and oh, Sally Daly Field is, appear is together. Her, her best friend. Her grumpy friend Rawls. Yeah. Tyne Daly, a few people do grumpy quite as well as Tyne she's Daly great. at this point. She is phenomenal in this, in this film. You know, and she is the one friend, she's one of, and that's the other thing I did like about this movie. Usually in a movie like this, these characters who are just kind of, the Doris character would be just this cruel caricature of a shut-in who has no life amongst others. But no, we see that she has a family. They love her, even though their relationship is complicated. She has friends, both at the office and at home and in her personal life. And all of these little anchors allow Dor- uh, Sally Field to make Doris a believable it, character. It's also one of the most sympathetic media treatments of a, a, a hoarder. She yes. is a clinical hoarder Absolutely. to the point where her family actually tries to get, you know, try, gets help yeah. and because she, you know, but it doesn't say, oh, she's a crazy lady who, who keeps bags of poop around. Right. When you find out why she's keeping this around, it becomes pretty tragic in place. So I think right. it's a combination of Showalter, who can go from that kind of broad comedy to something with a little bit more pathos, and I think you know it does take Sally Fields to to pull yeah. this part off. It's it's a very finely balanced thing. The thing is, like, yeah, it's it does all those things really well. I didn't care. <laughs> like, no. I was thinking, like, I'm like, this is this is you know 
good people doing doing fine work. I don't know. It just wasn't. I think there was a little bit too much cringe, and yeah. some of her behaviour is so stalky that it. I think it would have worked in a slightly blacker comedy. Yes, but I think it's it it's it's balanced very precariously between saccharine and black comedy and satire, and it never you know it, at any one point in time at least one of the legs on that. Um, Three-legged stool is a little too short, or yeah, no, I would agree. It's, it's it's you know, I mean, it is good. You had to watch not... it. The only reason to watch this is for Sally Field. Yeah, in anybody else's hands, it would be either a forgettable role or just a horrifically uncomfortable role. She makes her likable. It's worth watching for her, but uh, you know, mild praise it, it, for it Sally is Field. It is. Um, Whereas I think you have to have a heart of stone and no sense of humor at all to in, uh, to not enjoy Shaun the Sheep, the Farmer's Llamas. Well, let me tell you why I hated this, Richard. Ah, you uh, fool. <laughs> no, yourself a dwarf. No, no, no. Shaun the Sheep, uh, which is the latest uh, the, the, by Ardman Studios. Well, Shaun, the, Shaun the Sheep, which started uh, as a Wallace spin-off from mm-hmm. uh, one of the Wallace and Gromit. Uh, uh, it wasn't the wrong trousers. Uh, was... I think it was. Was it actually called Sean the Sheep? It had no, something no, to no, do no. with sheep. No, no, uh, no. Hang on, hang on. Yeah, talk to yourself. Well, Sean the Sheep uh, is a spin-off character from the Wallace and the much beloved Wallace and Gromit series. Uh, it is actually uh, on uh, on the BBC right now. I believe it's a series of uh, seven-minute episodes. But this was a 30-minute holiday episode that they put out recently. And so it's a bit longer. It has a lot more content. It has a lot more production value. It was a and close shave. That was that a was close the, shave. A close That's shave. The one. That the one. Now, if you're familiar with Wallace and Gromit, which is this sort of belovable, this lovable, eccentric, not terribly effective uh, human inventor who lives with his much, much smarter dog... Sean the Sheep actually kind of follows a similar formula in that Sean lives on a farm that belongs to a rather dim-witted farmer with his with his much smarter dog, uh, and they get into hijinks together. Somehow they wind up at a country fair, and the farmer, through Sean's mischievousness, uh, gets him to buy three llamas from Peru, who turn out to be just these horrible pests. And by the end you know, of the film, you've taken they have longer to, to explain. Then it takes a lot. Yes, suffice it to say, this it's was a, cute. I mean, this was a, a BBC Christmas special, uh, and it's so short that to fill out the disc, uh, they did have to throw in uh, two other episodes, uh, Cheetah, which are Cheetah seven minutes each, and uh, Zebra Ducks of the Serengeti. Um, you know, so the thematically thing. What's really fascinating is if you watch them. You can see how much they've changed the design on oh, yeah. many of the key characters. I mean, they, there's since more these, money, particularly since. Uh, well, they've also sim- they've simplified a lot of stuff. Yes, because I think they were realizing like, oh, this this is a lot to. Yeah. The, uh, you know, Sean's pretty much as he's always been designed because mm-hmm. he's pretty much locked in there. But uh, the dog um, is a lot simpler design now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the farmer is. I mean, this is great claymation. Yeah. It's what Ardman does. Um, it's you know, it's. Fun. It's, it's funny. Fun. I'm guessing that when the next Shaun the Sheep box set comes out, this is going to be included in there. If you can't wait, fair enough. It's it's really great for young kids too because it's all silent comedy. Hmm. Unlike Wallace and Gromit, where the people do talk, here everybody just makes little grunts and little noises. But yeah, if it's great if you want to see llamas portrayed as slightly nicer versions of velociraptors. Llamas. The llamas. Llamas. They're a lot of fun, even they, though they're they pains are, in the butt. Yeah. Um, Who knew llamas were so much trouble? Speaking of things with British accents, All right. um, a rather fun documentary that uh, came out, um, which actually is going to be. It's uh, this has come out through. I think it's MVD who's put this out. Uh, they are actually also going to be doing a uh, limited theatrical run, and I do encourage you to to go see this because I think I thought it had already played. It's it's doing across the summer. Oh, um, okay. It's getting it's doing bookings across the summer, including if you're in Austin, it will be showing at um, uh, the Blue Starlight Drive-in later in the year. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So you still haven't um, gone out there. You really things. should. You really should. It's great fun. It's too hot, <sighs> isn't it? But yeah. Well, the thing is, you're in, in your own car. You can turn the AC on. 
Oh, yeah. Good point. Well, <laughs> but I will eventually. <laughs> and then I'll go. Uh, this was a fun little... It's kind of a talking head documentary. And for, frankly, when I heard about this a few months back, I wasn't too excited because this is Elstree 1976. It's a series of interviews with people who were involved... Uh, in the cast of Star Wars, the original, the original Star, Star Wars. Star Wars. Now these mm-hmm. are these are not Mark. We're not talking Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher or even that guy who played you know that one dude with two lines. These are the background players, the bit parts, the extras, uh, people you recognize or not because they may have just been wearing a stormtrooper helmet. So we I mean, we've got people like Paul Blake who was under the Greedo uh, mm-hmm. mask. Uh, the one inclusion from yes. outside of the court trial, uh, outside the, the of the big six, which is Jeremy Bullock, yeah. uh, who obviously played Boba Fett, and, and seems and seems completely baffled by the fact that oh, people still care. As well, he should be. He was. He's like, really? Why are you? Why? <laughs> because there are like two or three people who played that role, and yet somehow he's identified with it. Uh, but it's charming. You you see all of these guys who are now, and one lady uh, who played a minor patron in the cantina. Uh, these were people who, you know, they just were on this film that they knew nothing about. They were all kind of jobbing actors starting out, and many of them have dropped out of the industry since then for one reason or the other. And yet, they are constantly pestered about this one tiny little walk-on they had 40 years ago, and many of them have now become uh, fixtures on the uh, convention circuit, which is the part I thought was interesting. That's the most interesting part. I mean, you know, it's this is about how being connected with a cultural phenomenon like Star Wars, it's always there in your life, whether you want it to be or not. Uh, And some of them, you know, are it's it's a much bigger part of how they define their lives. Yeah. Some of them it's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, you know, go and sign some stuff. Sure. Some of them had acting careers other than that. I mean, you've got one guy who afterwards goes and opens up a, a, a restaurant yeah. instead. You've got David Prowse who, you know, they, who, well, flat out they, states, this is his only source of income. Well, he, not that he needs one. I mean, he is 70 something and he's done okay. He's 78. He's done okay. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he's, uh, he, but he's kind of been, you know, he's still obviously bitter about some stuff from the, uh, from yeah, over the years. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's got some issues, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating. A, when they just talk about what it was like on set. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Star Wars fan, this is actually some uh, really interesting take from a bunch of people who are like, yeah, I was I was there. You know, I wasn't you know one of the people who needs to be nice about it. Now I can just say, yeah, I was there. I was like, uh, in fact, Pam Rose, who plays the uh, mm-hmm. uh, who ha- is literally a background character. Oh yeah, at they, one moment you actually have to freeze the frame to and see. And that's her. actually one of the nice little yeah, tricks is like because that. some of these people are in there for such tiny, tiny moments, they will actually freeze and kind of rocket back gif. and forth they, they yeah. gif they turn into a gif the moment was like here's their three seconds beep, yeah. beep, 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 beep. Yeah, more like their three frames and in some instances <laughs> yeah but I mean there's there's like the guy who played Fixer who is kind of he's rather, it's, he's yeah, rather yeah. sad because he because his his, his big, big scene. scene got cut out but as they explain he is the move along move along yeah. these aren't the droids you're looking for stormtrooper but he's like I don't even get an action figure for him either. Yeah. And, you know, having an action figure is like this this weird thing. It's a really fascinating, tiny documentary. This was a... Oh, yeah. I mean, this was a, a way under $100,000 doc. This is a small production that was funded oh. through Kickstarter. It feels that way. It does. It, but it's, you know, it's solid. It's interesting. I think if you're a Star Wars fan, this is really... Uh, or you're, if you're interested in what it, what it, what it means to be somebody on... The furthest periphery of fame. Yeah. This is really quite an interesting. I found it actually very interesting to hear about the politics that go behind these convention things. That uh, that was the part that interested me most because it was the one thing that was unexpected. They're like, oh, you actually, uh, there's some controversy over whether you should be autographing things if you didn't get credited or yeah. if you didn't have a line or, well, he's just an extra, you know. So I would have liked to have seen them go in a, a little bit more of that, but they were very polite about the whole thing. It's a fun doc. It's worth checking out. I mean, the thing is, it doesn't take... I think if they'd gone deeper into that, they would have had to take a side on that, and this doesn't take side. No, it this does not. This is just not. about people telling their stories. You and do hear really one guy like, kind of suggest, ah, oh, people look at me like, maybe I shouldn't be here. But, you know, that's about the extent of it. But the thing was, he was actually... He's actually a, one of these extras who... He didn't have a line, but 
when you know it's like, oh, it's him and him and him, you can understand why people are going to pay 20, yeah. 20 bucks to get And, and he's been in, like, multiple Lucasfilm uh, productions. So, oh, yeah. you know. he, he kept turning up. I mean, that's the thing. He's like, he yeah. keeps turning up as an extra. He's a professional extra. Excellent. Uh, and really, you know, I, this is a nice little documentary. Like I said, if you're a Star Wars fan, it's pretty much unmissable. Absolutely. Um, and has a hell of a lot more charm than The Force Awakens. So, screw you, JJ. Uh, yeah, I know. I can't let it go. I don't care. Oh, um, right. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of, of no charm... We do not approve this message. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, you remember, no charm. You remember oh, the 1980s? I've when, tried to forget some when of there it. Was, there were so many <clears throat> really dreadful but fun horror comedies yeah. and you know, erotic horrors and it was a whole genre and you have all this great stuff coming out you know like and people like Stuart Gordon oh yeah sure and Stuart Gordon is a goddamn genius who managed to make you know, these Things weird like... schlocky but kind of smart and well acted and incisive and like they just bundled everything together in 1995 Jim Wanoski a man whose name will go down in cinematic infamy when I can still do that kind of film. Made Sorceress. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. When you've got a film that starts off with basically Julie Strain's naked cleavage, and you kind of go, huh. And full frontal nudity. That's that's Julie Strain's naked cleavage. Okay, are we going somewhere with this? And then for 90-something minutes, it completely fails to go anywhere. She does wave her hands a bit to suggest she's doing some kind of spell. So, well, the, the basic, uh, and you know, I, this is more plot than really is there, is that Julie yeah. Strain plays a, uh, a sorceress who has decided that she's going to cast a spell uh, on her husband's uh, nemesis, uh, who's got the job that she thinks he should have. The the husband realizes she's casting spells and accidentally knocks her off the balcony. She dies, and then Linda Blair, you know, who is married to the guy that she cast the spell on, then decide. Well, she's a sorceress as well. Yes. So because she, these two lawyers both vying for the same position in L.A. both happen to marry witches. Witches. I mean, because again, that happens in L.A. Where else could that happen? Apparently. This is this is what happened. Not far fetched at all. No, not at all. Um, and so you have this kind of. She decides to curse him and ruin his life. Yeah. For, for... Mainly by having his new girlfriend increasingly turn into Julie Strain. Yeah. For reasons. For reasons. Because yeah. This and, is. And I should also point out that two things: these two guys who are sort of the reason these witches are having this lovers spat. They're totally cool with each other. Yeah. At first, okay they're not even aware that their wives are doing these horrible things to advance their careers. And likewise, the two antagonists want Julie Strain, who dies off early. I'm not spoiling it. Uh, she is supposedly doing things from beyond the grave. Uh, what's her name? Linda Blair is doing these horrible things. These are the two antagonists. They never meet. They are never on screen together. There is absolutely no this chemistry a, here. This is a terrible film. A it, lot there's of the, nothing good about a it. A lot of the fault uh, comes from uh, Jim Wanoski, who you were telling me this documentary. Yes. I, I, when you showed me this, it looked familiar, and I couldn't tell why. It took me a few seconds. There is, and it may still be on Netflix, it's called Papatopoulos. It was a documentary about Jim Wanoski. Now, I understand he has something of a cult following. Uh, maybe somebody considers him the master of cheap horror or exploitation, comedy, sex spoofs, whatever. Uh, by the sorcerers, sorceress, as horrible as it is, folks, this is one of the high points of his career. By the early aughts, when this uh, documentary was made, he's basically shooting of vampire sex parody over like three days in somebody's house somewhere. And you know what? That is the exact same formula he utilizes for Sorceress. And yet he somehow manages to do it better. By 10, 15 well, years later, he's a complete hack who no longer even cares. He's just getting the shot and getting out of it. Well, let's put it this way. It's the last fun. good thing that he did was the 1996... And I say good was the 1996 remake of The Wasp Woman. 
Oh, okay. Well, somebody had. But, I mean, the, the sad thing is, like, Winoski actually started off with some good stuff. I'll just go, like, he had Lost promise. Empire, uh, Chopping Mall. Yeah. Uh, Death Stalker 2, which is actually better than Death Stalker 1. Return of Swamp Thing, which is like. Uh... Is that the one with Adrian Barbeau or the one. That was the one after Adrian Barbeau. Yeah. All right. Because, I mean, we I remembered Adrian Barbeau. But then he kind of becomes so the king of, of sequels 976 Evil 2. Um, point of Suction 3 Body Chemistry Ghoulies 4 Body Chemistry 4 Full Exposure and then by by 2000 this is a man who has collapsed into uh, he is responsible for the Bear Wench Project yeah yeah uh, which is probably the worst of the softcore Blair Witch Project ripoffs um, the thing below I mean this is like here's the other thing this is a man who has become so terribly prolific that he now has a series of uh, pseudonyms he directs under, including J. Andrews, Bob E. Brown, Harold Blueberry, H.R. Blueberry, Jamie Wagner, Salvador Ross. Wow. Well, it just goes to show Sam how Pepperman. prolific. So this guy, like, and his latest, uh, it, you know, he did Cobra Gator. I guess the thing now, like he's actually on kind of a, a, an upwards trajectory again, because I think he's clearly been hired by the asylum yeah. uh, and all those all, you know, all those uh, mockbuster scumbags to just produce uh, terrible, terrible things. I, you know, this guy did. Oh my god, this guy made. Oh, he made two films in 2012. Yeah. That was uh, a slow year. Three in 2013, two in 2014. He's clearly uh, three slowing in 2015. Down. He's done two already this year because Nessie and Me is in post-production. This man needs to be stopped. You can be very prolific when you don't give a shit. Cleaning, I mean, clearly. Hey, turn the we, camera on. If shake your tits. We're done. If we're lucky, we'll get the Hills Half Thighs too. What's soon. really sad is Sorceress. I, look, I don't know who. This is 1995. I mean. This movie does not look like it was made 20 years ago. You're right. It feels like an 80s movie. It looks like it has a 70s budget. And it looks like it's the 60s idea of, of porn. Because it is so tame, apart from those few shots. You do, if you have a high-speed internet connection, if you're older than 14 years old, if you've ever touched a woman's breasts, there is nothing in this movie for you. I could see a 12-year-old sheltered little boy being fascinated by Sorceress. But everybody else, just ignore it. It's worthless. No, I don't think even a 12-year-old boy... Like, now... It's nothing, even in 1995, I'd be like, yeah, I can get better. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, who does this appeal to? There's no horror, and what there's some nudity, but the sex is, is non-existent, and it's not even... It's not even a rock. It's horrible. Uh, oh, my By God. By contrast. Wash. By contrast. I've got to say, folks... Not horrible. We are going to go straight into uh, our penultimate title, yes. and it is also deservedly yes. our pick of the week, uh, which is Nokatsu Diamond Guys Volume 2. Now, a little bit of history here. Uh, like, everybody knows, you know, they know Toho. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Japanese film studios, everybody knows Toho. Um, uh, you know, there's a couple of other people might know of. Nokatsu is actually the oldest mm -hmm. um, TV and uh, film studio in Japan. Yeah. And this this was they've been around forever. They were founded in time. 1912. And um, Arrow Video has been has, has gone through kind of their classic, weird 50s... 50s and 60s. 50s and 60s, like, day-glow comedy dramas... And picked some real gems. Yeah. This is volume two. Uh, the titles included here uh, are Tokyo Mighty Guy, um, Danger Pays, um, and Murder Unincorporated. Um, and they're great. They're yeah. crazy. They are. They, uh, they, it, it's like somebody watched Roman Holiday and Beach, uh, Beach Blanket Bingo and didn't quite get it but went we'll give it a shot well one thing that the uh there's there's a couple of uh, uh featurettes on here by uh, 
and you have to understand, folks, we got a screener copy. So if you buy the real thing, you're going to get a nice cover. You're going to get a nice little slick oh, booklet is, and description. This is Arrow, and honestly, yeah. uh, everything they put out. You know, I, I do not get upset. You know, sometimes you just feel like, oh, you know, a distribution house is being cheap by just sending us like a, a burn of the yeah. Blu-ray. I would feel bad if, if Arrow sent me the actual box oh, sets yeah, they no. send out because everything they do is beautifully done the Absolutely. art is phenomenal this is a 3000 copy limited edition yeah. Blu-ray high def uh, new transfers of all the films yeah. I mean the, the, the transfers are a little rough because I don't think many good copies of these things yeah. I mean these things clearly played for oh, yeah. years um, I'm not complaining, by the way, about the lack of features. Nearly why I just can't yeah. read this got, gentleman's name. But we got, you know, the you know, this has got uh, discussions with Japanese cinema actor Jasper Sharp. That's the one, uh, Jasper Sharp on uh, Joe Shishido and uh, Akira Kobayashi, uh, who, who were two of the guys who you know, were mainstays of the studio around this yeah. time. This is just wonderful period stuff. Yes, this is a you know, uh, I didn't manage to get through the, all, all the way through this disc just because I had so much on you did uh, we both saw Tokyo Mighty Guy which stars Akira Kobayashi as Jiro who went to Japan, went to Paris to uh, learn how to be an engineer and came back and all he'd done was eat French food and now he's helping his parents open a, uh, a western restaurant it is referred to as a western restaurant and I was like oh yes that feels right um and he's, you know, he was, he's charming and he's, 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 a, he's a good looking guy. He's completely and, capable of everything. And he, all the, the local women have fallen in love with him to, to some degree or other. And what, you know, not giving away too much Bob, because it is wonderfully labyrinthine. It is kind It's basically a comedy of confusion mm-hmm. about, you know, Who's in love with who, and silhouettes seen through windows, and people thinking that it's you know, everybody taking it for the wrong person, and the yakuza are in this, wow. and the president of Japan, and, and just all it's just like yeah. they just went, let's throw everything in here. This is it, it's a screwball comedy without the screwiness. Yeah. Which I the thing about screwball comedies I hate is when somebody breaks out the swanny whistle. I'm like, yeah, you lost me. That's just cheesy. It takes that out, and it's wonderful fun. Yeah, this is. Oh, you know, I was I, I was charmed by this. It's you know, it's a short, punchy, seventy something minutes. It flies by, and it's glorious. I suspect that a lot of people will prefer the the next. Uh, installment on the Diamond Guy disc. But I have to say, Tokyo Mighty Guy was actually my favorite. It is the lightest. It feels the least consequential. Uh, however... Or even sequential. Or sequential. <laughs> but there's a lot of interesting little things that kind of sneak in that give you a little idea about maybe what Tokyo might have been like in the 60s. Because you have a guy who's coming back from Europe with all these ideas about western society you have a wedding in a western church that's obviously christian you have musical numbers that feel inspired like mgm so weird when you go around tokyo and see a, and see a catholic church yeah and you it's reference like, what the hell they actually reference uh, a, a variety of uh, western phenomena and it's this picture of tokyo as it saw itself during this period which is a very modern cosmopolitan city uh, with this recurring motif of helicopters that give us this great aerial views. Uh, by the way, in case you were wondering, the Diamond Guys actually refers to all of these uh, actors who star in this. These are the A-listers. And uh, this particular actor is wonderful in this role. Uh, going into the next one, probably a more familiar actor to some of our viewers here is uh, Joe Shishido, who you might have seen in things like... Uh, Oh, what was that Suzuki film he did? Branded to Kill. Oh, yes. And some other strange... You'll, you'll recognize him the minute with, you see him. Massacre Gun Retaliation. With his famous was, cheeks. Yes, his famous cheeks, which were actually uh, implants. Yes. Because he couldn't get work, but he put these cheeks and just looked different. And suddenly he was a big star, and he was one of the Diamond Guys. And he is the star of the, our next film, uh, which was actually the most fun for me on the disc, which was uh, Danger Pays, which is a great little... Think of a sort of like a, a European crime thriller with a little bit of a Rat Pack flair to it. It's got a lot of comedy. It's it's a caper film, and it's great fun. 
And now you didn't get to see the last one, which is I, also I didn't, fun. I didn't get to see uh, Murder Inco- uh, Unincorporated, but I do actually... It, it, it's on the list now. No, and and I actually, months ago, I got sent Diamond Guys Volume 1. I am going to sit down and watch that one as well. Oh, man, this no, is I'm glorious. I, I will, lend, you that. I will lend that to you as soon as I'm done. I would love that. Because I had a great fun. Even Murder in Unincorporated, which I think is the weakest of the bunch, is still a great ride. It's got a lot of style. It's got a bunch of... It's, a, again, a convoluted labyrinthine plot. But suffice it to they say... They seem to love those. Of dozens that. and dozens of themed uh, assassins. Uh, they hire all these assassins. Imagine if you had to hire one guy as an assassin from every gang, from gangs of from the Warriors. That's what you'd get. Guys who'd show up with baseball bats that turn into guns or... Guys who show up as I mean, dressed as Native like, Americans with I, I bows and arrows. It, I caught a teeny tiny little bit of it. I just kind of like just it's tried hilarious. to get a taste of it because I didn't get it. Enough. And it has kind of almost a very much a a funny thing happened on the way to the yeah. forum sense of humor. Mad, it's mad, mad, mad world. world. Uh, one character cast. looks like an axe like Jerry Lewis, which is uh, for a Laban. Yeah. Uh, no, this is this is splendid. It's uh, great. I, you know, it just continues Arrow's tradition of just. Clearly knocking out of the park on some great releases that I am super happy they're out there for. I mean, I know I get tongue-tied talking about some of these films, and so I'm going to keep it short. This is the best film in the bunch. If you get your hands on a copy, consider yourself lucky. I mean, it actually beat out L Street 1976 as, as my pick of the week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as soon as you went, this is my pick of the week. I went, yeah, it's mine as well. Yeah, this is you know, and yeah, you know, this is this is just great. And I, you know, if you are a fan of yeah, if you're a fan of Japanese film, but you've kind of been limited because a lot of this stuff hasn't been available over here, because I think people thought, oh, people just want the hard-edged Yakuza stuff, or they just want yeah. anime, or they just want the Godzilla stuff. This opens up a whole new wing of yeah. the, the the Museum of Japanese Cinema. And this was we... mainstream <gasps> yeah. Japanese cinema. Yeah, It was not art fair. This was what common people went to go when they just want to go see a good movie. Yeah. Speaking of just a movie you want to go see when you just want a good movie, nothing's more. Yeah, this is uh, uh, this is actually our giveaway yes. for this week, uh, and this is Gridlocked, which is a 2015 Canadian action thriller uh, by Alan Unger. It's basically a yeah, it, it's very much along the lines of an assault on Precinct 13 mm-hmm. kind of script. A little bit of lethal uh, weapon. Yeah, a little lethal weapon. Actually, a lot of lethal weapon. A lot of lethal weapon. weapon. Uh, Dominic <laughs> Purcell plays David Hendricks, who heads up this uh, kind of elite Uber SWAT team. Um, they're looking after a... Uh, they're on night shift at a station when uh, this gang of uh, mercenaries, um, led by Stephen Lang, decides they want to break in. They, there is a MacGuffin inside that they want to get a hold of. Dominic Purcell wants to stop them. Uh, He's got a gang of badass detectives with him, um, and he's also settled with a, an actor. Uh, with a, with because an we actor, also have Cody, the Hardway Cody, reference as well. Oh yeah, Cody Hackman played by uh, Brody Walker. Um, this is just a good old fashioned rock'em sock'em eighty style action yeah. film, and I had a ton of fun with this, and you will too. The only thing missing on this film is a clamshell case because this is exactly what you would have got in the eighties, man. This yeah. is a great throwback. A lot of fun. So, yeah, we have uh, a copy of this to give away. Um, and, yeah, very simple. All you have to do is follow us uh, on Twitter, at oneofusnet. Uh, use the hashtag gridlockedgiveaway. And that's G-R-I-D-L-O-C-K-E-D, gridlocked giveaway. And you need to answer this one question. And over to you, Marco, because I know you haven't prepared anything. And I love doing this to you. It's one of my favorite parts of my show. All right. If you could recast any 80s movie and remake it today, what would it be? Okay, okay, let's refine that. If you could recast any 80s action movie. Oh, that's better. Any 80s action movie. And, yeah, you are going to get extra points. If you can give us a lead, yeah, I, we, I will definitely consider extra points for somebody. If the, if you can come up with a a lead where I go, yeah, I you know what I I would watch that. So Key and Peele is Martin and Riggs. Ah, oh. oh no, um, uh, Key and Peele in Forty Eight Hours. Just Key and Peele in all the buddy cop films. Yeah, but, uh, no, but at 48 hours, they'd be great in. They would be. That would be. I would I would pay serious money for that. That's just something that should happen. 
<laughs> Hollywood, you've been told. Make this film now. Key, peel, call us. You can send us a check. We want points. I, I will take points. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take points on the back end. Absolutely. Gross, not net. Um, so, yeah, I believe we're done. We've come to the end. Like I said, I mean, this is a, this is a solid week for midsummer, uh, when you know you don't necessarily get everything coming out, but this is a solid week with some really good stuff in there. I mean, personally, like we said, gotta recommend um, uh, Nakatsu Diamond Guys uh, Volume Two because it's phenomenal. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, you know, LG seventy six, Shaun the Sheep. Oh, yeah. yeah, there was a Even lot of stuff. Ballers. If you're in ballers, H- if you're on HBO, yeah, check that show is. out. And I'm, re- yeah, I gotta say, I want to watch the rest of it, and I really want to get season two because that's, you know, they've, they've confirmed season two is happening, and I am very happy about this. All right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and don't forget, gridlock giveaway. Just answer that question, and somebody is getting a copy of that. Uh, okay. Well, uh, thank you as always, Marco. It is a genuine pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, you may also have heard a brief interjection from uh, Trixie, my dog, uh, who uh, is a big film fan and watches movies with me. Uh, well, she listens to them because she's, she's a little bit blind. But, uh, yeah, if you ever hear a yelp in the background, that's Trixie and it's not just me kicking Chris. Um, so uh, there, that leaves me with nothing but to finish with our traditional mantra. The release is too big. The release is too, too small. small. From criteria to catastrophe, we release them all. And good night. Good night.